This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, executive editor. The architectural historian Vincent Scully did more than influence a generation. At Yale, he influenced generations, lecturing and writing for well over half a century. Philip Johnson once described Scully as the most influential architectural teacher ever. His death in November 2017, at the age of 97, has occasioned a beautiful remembrance by my guest today, Michael J. Lewis. Michael, who is the Faison Pearson Stoddard Professor of Art at Williams College, has been writing for the New Criterion since 1996. His contribution to our January 2018 issue, Vincent Joseph Scully, 1920 to 2017, is his 45th essay for the magazine. Michael, welcome. I should let our listeners know that you, Michael, did astonishing work getting this essay together in just a matter of days in order to be published in our January issue. In fact, we held the presses, so to speak, while you wrote it. You must have known what you were going to say. How did you grow to have such a strong impression of your subject? When I first got into this field, as I did in the late 1970s, I knew that Vincent Scully was a legend. He was, he was at the center of the gravitational universe of American architecture. And as a very callow undergraduate, I made my way to New Haven and barged into the slide room to introduce myself. I didn't realize that was a no-no. That was taboo. That was bearding the lion in his den. And he could not have been more gracious and courteous to me. And uh, it gave me an example of kindness towards your youngest students that I, that I, I hope I, I can try to live up to. But as it happens, just with the actuarial tables, I knew that as he was hitting his late 90s, that sooner or later, there would ha you would have to step back and take stock of what his career meant. So when you called me and proposed this, I, it, it's true, I had been thinking, what would you say in a short form to take the measure of his life? Because it's actually amazingly capacious what he did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm delighted that you have offered to read this tribute once again, this is Michael J. Lewis reading from Vincent Joseph Scully, 1920 to 2017, from the January 2018 issue of The New Criterion. It is no tragedy to die at the age of 97, as Vincent Scully did last November, certainly not after a life as full and accomplished as his. He was America's most significant historian of architecture, and surely the only one who could have claimed to have changed the course of American architecture. During his half-century at Yale University, he left his mark on generations of consequential architects, from Norman Foster, Richard Rogers, and Robert A.M. Stern, down to Maya Lin, Andre Duany, and Elizabeth Platter Zyberk. And yet there is a note of melancholy in Scully's elegies, and not just because there is no understudy waiting in the wings to take his place. It is rather that the qualities that he sought in buildings, the heroic, the humanistic, the tragic, hold little relevance to today's incurious culture. Scully was born in New Haven in 1920, and except for World War II and an extended stay in Rome, his entire life revolved around that city and Yale University. 
He received his undergraduate degree at Yale, from which, as an Irish Catholic, he felt a sense of social exclusion. After military service, he returned to Yale, receiving his Ph.D. in 1949, by which time he was already delivering a rough version of what would become his spellbindingly rhapsodic lectures. He begrudgingly accepted compulsory retirement at age 70, although he continued to lecture into his 90s. Although Scully wrote a dozen books, most notably The Shingle Style, it was the lectures that secured his fame. These were the conventional slide lectures of the days before PowerPoint, with multiple projectors showing different slides, the projectionist sliding the next image into place at the lecturer's command. But in no other respect were they conventional. Most lecturers shift to the next image, pause for an instant, and then launch into a new set of thoughts. But Scully exploited the full potential of a visual presentation. His images advanced in mid-sentence, as if conjured by living thought, the visual and the verbal material moving together in a kind of musical unity. Despite Scully's legendary perfectionism, his lectures were no clockwork affairs. Within the lattice of the predetermined sequence, he spoke extemporaneously, without notes, making impromptu asides, his voice alternately growling, dropping to a whisper, or breaking into a sob. One is not surprised to learn that Scully's mother had sung opera, and that he himself had briefly considered acting as a career. Also remarkable was the sheer physicality of the performance. While most Lecturers indicate details on the screen with small wooden pointers, like a conductor's baton. Scully favored an oversized bamboo pointer that he wielded like Captain Ahab's harpoon, striking the screen violently to call attention to a feature. And all the showmanship had a point, of course. Buildings are palpable physical things, and we experience them with our bodies. Scully's eloquence poured out in a furious cascade of metaphors and similes, some of which found their way into his 1969 book, American Architecture and Urbanism. For example, Frank Furness's Provident and Life Trust Building was, quote, a great machine out of technology's archaic beginnings, a cast iron marvel by Jules Verne, a Philadelphia row house worked up into a paroxysm at once athletic and mechanical, a great golem of industrialization clanking away. The Empire State Building, by contrast, quote, a lonely dinosaur rose sadly at Midtown, highest tower, tallest mountain, longest road, King Kong's eerie, meant to moor airships, alas. Most quoted is his lament for Pennsylvania Station. Through it, one entered the city like a god. One scuttles in now like a rat. If that station is ever rebuilt, which at this moment seems barely possible, a goodly portion of the credit will go to that offhand quip. Scully, of course, was more than a hypnotic Irish raconteur. He was the right man at the right time at the right place, i.e. Yale. When he gave his first lectures in 1947, History had been effectively banished from the training of architects. If modern architects looked at the buildings of the past, as in Siegfried Gideon's prestigious Space, Time, and Architecture, 
1941, they did so only as an exercise in genealogy to trace the paternity of various modern forms and modes of construction. Gideon's history, based on his lectures at Harvard, was ruthlessly mendacious. He cropped the photograph of Lewis Sullivan's pioneering Carson's Peary Scott store in Chicago so as to show only the rational steel cage of its middle stories, leaving out the writhing floral ornament at its base and crown. This Scully changed. His improvisational method of confronting a building in the classroom and leading his listeners to experience it imaginatively gave it intrinsic drama and urgency. It also had the effect of making all architecture contemporary. In the process, any smugness about the present was forgotten. At first, and only briefly, Scully was a conventional modernist. His lodestar was Frank Lloyd Wright, and he even commissioned Wright to design him a house in New Haven, for which he never found the funds. Setting out to understand Wright's Wright's radical conception of fluid space, he looked for its origins in the innovative planning of American cottages and suburban houses of the 19th century. Scully came to appreciate their ingenious floor plans on their own terms, their flowing circulation, their sense of ease and graciousness, their clever integration of stair, fireplace, and ingle nook in that new spatial creation, the living hall. To understand them on their own terms and not merely as stepping stones to write. His dissertation was published in revised form as the Shingle Style in 1955 and expanded again in 1971 and is perhaps the first book on 19th century architecture to have had a serious and immediate effect on contemporary building. It remains an indispensable reference for architects with a practice in domestic architecture. Already by 1952, Scully was a man to watch. In that year, Alfred Barr, the director of the Museum of Modern Art, commissioned him to write a sequel to the international style. The catalog of that museum's groundbreaking 1932 exhibition of European modernism Scully was proposed by none other than Philip Johnson and Henry Russell Hitchcock, the organizers of that exhibition and the author of that catalog. But already Scully was straying from orthodoxy. His manuscript attacked Gideon's space-time and architecture head-on as a Kabbalistic creed screed with only a spurish, spurious relationship to science. Barr was horrified and terminated the contract. Scully eventually published the book in 1961 as Modern Architecture, the Architecture of Democracy. Modern architecture, like all of Scully's writing, is strikingly free of ideology. That is, ideology in the sense of fixed doctrine or dogma. His heroes changed over time, from Wright to Le Corbusier in the mid-1950s, to Louis Kahn at the end of the decade, to Robert Venturi in the 1960s, and finally to Duany and Platter Zyberk, his own students and the leaders of that movement called the New Urbanism. What might seem at first glance to be unprincipled fickleness 
was in fact an expression of consistency on the part of Scully, who always identified himself with what he felt to represent the most humanist direction of architecture at any given moment. This supple responsiveness to changing conditions is precisely what, what, what one wants in a critic. No one wants to be Rainer Banham, anchoring yourself to brutalism and finding yourself still anchored to it when the boat sinks. Scully is best remembered as a champion of a humane urbanism, but this happened only gradually. His year in Italy, 1951-52, exposed him to the glories of the ancient city, while the rapid ravages of urban renewal, which he subsequently witnessed firsthand in New Haven, distressed and disoriented him. But for all his free thinking and dissent, he still regarded himself as a modernist. He did not join the protest over the demolition of Pennsylvania Station in 1964, for example, something he later rued. In that year, his lingering allegiance to high modernism was put to the test in a curious debate with, of all people, Norman Mailer. Mailer had written a scurrilous attack on, quote, the plague of modern architecture for Esquire magazine, and it drew considerable public attention. In it, Mailer charged that modernism has left us, quote, isolated in the empty landscapes of psychosis, precisely that inner landscape of void and dread which we flee by turning to totalitarian styles of life. End of quote. Architectural Forum, the influential professional journal, decided to reprint excerpts from the piece with Scully as respondent, followed by a rebuttal from Mailer. Scully retorted that Mailer's, quote, lazy pot-boiling paragraphs were refuted in tangible form by the work of Wright, Le Corbusier, Alvar Alto, and Louis Kahn. Mailer, in short, offered nothing but, quote, the big lie at its most majestic. The story of that battle is well told by Neil Levine in his edited anthology of Scully's writings called Modern Architecture and Other Essays. Mailer took Scully's rebuke in stride. He's a better writer than me, Mailer quipped, but I know more about architecture. Scully, for his part, soon came to endorse Mailer's views, conceding in the end that modern architecture may have produced suburb, superb works of individual genius, but its urban consequences had been almost uniformly vicious. His beloved battered New Haven was a daily reminder of this. He soon befriended Jane Jacobs, the great critic of urban renewal and the author of The Death and Life of Great American Cities. By the end of the decade, the transformation was complete. Scully could look at Skidmore Owings and Merrill's new Beinecke Library at Yale and finally admit that Mailer had been right all along. This, he proclaimed, is the true empty landscape of psychosis about which Norman Mailer warned us in 1963. Scully had been divided to deliver a public lecture on Friday, September 15, 2001 the text of which he promptly discarded following the terrorist attacks that Tuesday. In the space of a few days, he prepared an entirely different talk on the buildings that had been targeted for destruction. 
One slide showed the sun rising directly between the paired pylons of the Twin Towers, showing the same cosmological order as Stonehenge. Next came an aerial view of Lower Manhattan, the tower standing proud and erect in the center. In the foreground was the plastic window of an airplane through which the photograph had been taken, and for one terrifying instant, we too are flying on their mission of destruction. The audience gasped, and in a way they would not do so today, when we can retrieve any image instantly, electronically. Somehow Scully had an uncanny knack for having the exact right image at his fingertips. Any clever historian might have delivered such a talk, but none of them would have contributed the undercurrent of scarcely concealed feeling that made every talk by Scully as much an emotional as an aesthetic journey. Among his contemporaries at Yale, all of them now deceased, it used to be whispered about that Scully was plucked from the Battle of Guadalcanal, shattered emotionally. At this point, it is impossible to know what happened. He refused to talk about the war, deflecting any questions with amusing anecdotes about flunking out of flight school. A later age would look with more forgivingly at any such signs of weakness in the face of the unspeakable, perhaps more forgivingly than Scully himself ever could. At any rate, there was always the sense in his talks of someone who had plumbed the full depths of the tragic dignity of the human experience, and this, in the end, is Scully's most enduring accomplishment, to have inculcated in several generations an architects of architects an awareness of the humanist lobe of their discipline, which had been dislodged by myths of functionalism and technological progress. His career coincided almost exactly with the rehabilitation and subsequent fall of our history as an essential component of architectural culture. Today, history has again become unfashionable once more, as it was in the 1940s, although now it is now viewed not so much with hostility as with indifference. And indifference is far worse, for the hostility of the teacher always arouses the curiosity of the skeptical student. Here, many factors are at play a commercialized culture of celebrity architects, a widespread and growing ignorance of history, and a certain as yet undefined technological influence. As architecture students now receive their formative experience of buildings from pixelated graphic projections on computer monitors, just as they once learned about them from delicate copper plate engravings, all is bright, schematic, attractively free of the distractions of earthly physicality and utterly barren of any human presence. And certainly the sensitive, fragile, puckish, and ever-striving human presence that was the abiding legacy of Vincent Joseph Scully. Oh, Michael, we're so grateful for this essay and thank you for reading it here. Oh, my pleasure. I'd like to hear a little more about your personal connection to him. My personal connection? Minimal. I didn't go to Yale. Mm -hmm. I went to the University of Pennsylvania for my degree. I met him once, as I told you, as an undergraduate, where he treated me with conspicuous and undeserved kindness. 
without any pretentiousness. I remember that. And from that moment on, I only saw him at a distance Mm -hmm. lecturing. I remember most striking memory of him is his weird, rather weird, kinetic identification with the physicality of a building. I was standing at the top of the great stair in Frank Furness's Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. It was a conference, and Scully was at the bottom of the stair, and he was telling someone about the physical force of the newel, this this delightfully compressed high Victorian newel at the bottom of the stair that seemed to be like Atlas holding the weight of the, of the, the world on its shoulders. And Scully was on his knees, pantomiming the stress. And it was like a great scene from a Lon Chaney silent movie. The whole story, I didn't have to hear what he was saying to know as he moved his shoulders mm. and hands what he, what he was mm. telling. Amazing. Mm. You mentioned here he was strikingly free of ideology. Uh, he had a remarkable capacity to evolve. He could change his mind. Uh, and so he appears at, uh, as a key figure at different inflection points in the history of 20th century architecture. He was able to advocate for the modernism, as you mentioned, of Louis Kahn, and as equally as the postmodernism of Robert Venturi. You say that's consistent. It was his humanism. But how was that consistency viewed by others? Well, I don't think people ever looked to Scully, and all the architects at Yale were drawn to his lectures, at first for the sheer entertainment value. Mm-hmm. There are there are legendary stories of him being caught up in his aesthetic rapture and walking right off the edge of the stage, plummeting to the ground, coming to his feet and continuing without, without pause. I heard one eyewitness of the time he set his lecture notes afire by putting them too close to the reader's lamp and wasn't aware of it, though everyone in the room saw the burning burning blaze. So people were drawn to the eloquence, and I don't think they ever extracted from him a coherent body of ideas, but, but rather the lesson that buildings matter in the biggest way, that they are not mere expressions of, of architectural theory, but they are objects of our culture as important as our our great books and our great songs. And he was a great reader. And I I think the lesson of him was that you you become you become a champion of good architecture, not by limiting yourself to architecture, but by exposing yourself to ideas. And in the 50s, he was a great reader of existentialism. And there's a kind of bleak acceptance of existential crisis in his writings of the 50s that we stood at the edge of atomic annihilation, but we had to face it with our heads held high with, with dignity. So there, so he's showing you what, what the humanist values are that you look for, and they're strangely elastic. They don't get attached to any particular style. Mm. The way some people live and die, I don't know, by the gospel of social responsibility, your, your mandate is to build housing, or your mandate is to express the innermost truth of materials and their structural imperatives. For our listenership further reading, do you have a favorite Scully book? You mentioned the, sh- the shingle style. You, you brought to here modern architecture and American architecture and urbanism. James, I brought here American architecture and urbanism, which I think is the closest we have, since we don't have his living voice anymore, the closest we have to a lecture by Vincent Scully. And I brought it to show you 
the kind of games he would play. This is American Architecture and Urbanism of 1969, very influential book. It purports to be an architectural history of, of America and the American city. And it's clear as you read it that it's got that, that nimble quality of someone thinking on his feet. These are ideas he tried out in the lecture. And I want you to look at this. I've got a picture here. Mm -hmm. he, he begins the book by saying, what, what is the ethos of America? What is the bigness of the land? Our strange uneasiness on this big place, our, our sense of freedom and our apprehension. So here he does a comparison because between a Plains Indian's high-pommeled saddle with these elaborated fins that he compares to, I think it's a 1957 Plymouth, which has similar fins, both the signs of this, this questing migrant population moving over the land, and then right below it, this is hilarious, he compares Buckminster Fuller's Dymaxion house, mm -hmm. which was really the first house designed entirely according to functional principles. It's got a central mast from which the house is hung, and he compares it to a, uh, an Arapaho uh, Indian camp teepees in Kansas, middle of the 19th century, which is also a mobile dwelling suspended on a central array of masts. And he, it was these comparisons that at first glance are senseless. What, mm -hmm. what, does a, what does a Plymouth automobile have to do with a Plains Indian saddle? But he makes the argument that you should free yourself from those na narrow categories of style, date, and movement to look sympathetically at the whole visual world around us and see these connections. And you walk away at first, first bemused by, by his visual cheating because you realize he's carefully contrived two things that look alike and found the exact right photograph that stresses the resemblance. And at the other hand, you realize at another level this is true. There is a strange kinship between the things we make across the centuries that show deeper patterns that are invisible to us. And was this a product of a visual memory where he could pull? Extraordinary visual memory. Yeah. And that's why I told the anecdote in the article about him whipping together that, that slide in a matter of hours after 9-11. He remembered things, but he he also remembered the exact angle from which it was photographed. And to make, to make the World Trade Center look like Stonehenge required a, 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 Right, and, it, and, and uh, also the, just the cover of the book. It looks like, a, is, it, is that the uh, Venturi house here? The, that's a very, Venturi vacation house. Yeah, Venturi vacation house and uh, some, uh, uh, a main street. Yeah. Um, two pictures you wouldn't necessarily put together. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, what follows Vincent Scully? Is there a voice in architecture today as re resident or at least uh, one that comes close? Or is there no longer a coherence in architecture or the study of architecture that could allow a Vincent Scully to emerge? Vincent Scully was a generalist, and he was, he was abused by his colleagues for that. He wrote a book, very controversial book, called The Earth, the Temple, and the Gods, where, where he paid attention to the peculiar sighting of Greek temples with a theory that to understand their axial relationships, you had to look at the, the mountains and valleys and the topography of the landscape around them. And it was a provocative book. It was entirely conducted on the basis of visual evidence. 
but I think the fury was the the it was a, a turf guarding outrage that a non classicist would stray into classical territory without a license to commit classicism, <laughs> and I I cannot I have not been to the sites of the temples he talks about, so I, I you you would want to read a review by someone who did. But it strikes me that there's something wonderful about that, an art historian for whom the, the whole world is his subject, and we don't make them anymore. We do not make generalists. We, mm-hmm. make, we make very narrowly focused graduate students who, in my experience, can sometimes be a bore on their own subject, but useless on any other. <laughs> um. Just a little preview. Next for us, you will be writing on uh, a plan for Penn Station. Do you want to just? I think I'm overdue. Yeah, you want you want to just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you know, I I came up today from Philadelphia for for this this interview, and I I uh, arrived in Amtrak Station. And uh, your your listeners should know that there is an in- initiative called Rebuild Penn Station, which is both the name of the group and their entire mission statement. They would like to see rebuilt, line for line, molding for molding, McKim-Meaden White's glorious Penn Station, which stood from 1910 to 1963 and has been replaced by by our modern Amtrak uh, Penn Station. And as I went through an initiative, I should mention, that might cost as much as $3.5 billion, the drawings survive. McKim's drawings are all intact. It could be put out for bid next month. But it struck me to convince someone of the essential rightness of that. It's the easiest thing in the world. All you need to do is show them a photograph of the main waiting room of the original building and then walk them through Amtrak Station today. Do you think um, Vincent Scully would like the idea? Oh, I think he would like it very much. (laughs) For the first half of his life, he wouldn't. I think he felt a great sense of chagrin to miss the destruction of that building. It's really a remarkable building in that it was torn down because it was felt to be to to be an archaic lie. It, it was it was a false reconstruction of a Roman bath, the Bass of Caracalla. In fact, it's larger than the actual Bass of Caracalla. It was felt to be a museum piece. In fact, it was the most technological train station that had ever been built. If you think of the world's great train stations, Paris, London, Frankfurt, Hamburg, all of them have two parts. They have a shed where the trains arrive, and then the big headhouse, which is treated fictitiously as a palace or or an opera house or a, or a Greek propylaea. Penn Station is different in that there was no shed. The trains came underwater through the tunnel and emerged from beneath the city. So McKim realized he couldn't build a portal with this with this great line of tracks behind him. He had to give the city a great civic place. And that's what the waiting, waiting room was. America's finest bit of transportation architecture ever. Mm. Well, I hope it comes back. Um, I do too. <laughs> well, if you think about it, Calatrava's transportation hub by by the World Trade Center cost, as I understand, upwards of four billion dollars more right. than estimates. I was going to mention that Path Station. It's really a, a shopping mall. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
Well, you've been listening to the New Criterion podcast, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at newcriterion.com. I'm James Pinero. My guest today is Michael J. Lewis. Michael's latest essay, Vincent Joseph Scully, 1920-2017, appears in the January 2018 issue of the New Criterion. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome.